You are listening to the voice of Ahlus Sunnah wal Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Well, I don't know if this is a bit too much too soon. Hmm? Starting the day in the mornings and standing in for Yusuf Ali and finishing the evenings off as well. Uh, you know, you switch on the radio in the mornings and there I am going on. You come home in the day and I'm still going on. It's just like, you know, it's a bad coin that just doesn't go away. It just keeps on coming back. Oh, well, anyway. Uh, that's the end of the Monday. Alhamdulillah. I hope you had a pleasant day. Uh, that the traffic wasn't too bad coming home in the evening. Oh, well, if you were caught in Chani today, boy, uh, believe me, you had a really lousy day because the municipal workers were going on strike. Um, some uh, clever guys among them went and uh, hijacked a few uh, municipal buses. They got the keys from somewhere. And then they drove the buses into the center of the city, parked them in uh, very busy intersections, uh, climbed out of the bus, took the keys with them and left the buses. And as a result, the entire city was in gridlock. Uh, for the greater part of the day, uh, people were stuck in their cars in, in lines of traffic stretching out from the CBD all the way to the highways that uh, surround uh, the capital of the country. Um, so, yeah, if you thought you had a lousy day coming home today in the traffic, well, just uh, be thankful that you weren't in Pretoria today. Um, although maybe if you're in Johannesburg, it's suddenly it seems a bit of a lighter traffic. Hmm? <laughs> You know, it swings in roundabouts. Uh, it's uh, the silver lining to every cloud. Yeah, well, maybe Johannesburg uh, drivers expected uh, a bit of an easier day today because there were more people stuck in Pretoria for the greater part of the day. Ah, well, so it is life in South Africa. It's not uh, something uh, that you can say um, we expect to have a normal day every day, a normal day, a normal South African day. What is it amounting to, hmm? Um, uh, you wake up in the mornings, the lights are off, the electricity is uh, shorted. Yeah, the Izinyoga from the squatter settlement across the way have been uh, taking but too much electricity off the um, off the light cables outside your house, and uh, suddenly the entire neighborhood doesn't have any electricity. Um, you get into your car and uh, you spend like about 10 minutes at the traffic lights because the traffic lights aren't working. Um, and uh, you head down towards the highway and you've got a, you've got a dent in your, in your wheel because there's a pothole in the road. Ah, uh, well, you know, <clears throat> drive past squatter settlements on this side, squatter settlements on that side. Mm-hmm. Uh, lights not working, uh, some traffic lights not working. The only things that are working are the uh, are the traffic cameras. Hmm? Their lights are still flashing. It's amazing. <laughs> the traffic lights are showing no sign of life whatsoever. But hey, those speed cameras, they just keep on shooting away. It's, I wonder where they get their energy supplies from. Very clearly, they're not getting it from ESCOM is all I can say. Um, yeah, the speed cameras, they continue working. Um, Traffic cops, well, I don't think there were many, much uh, sign of traffic uh, traffic cops in Pretoria today because they've been too busy in the CBD trying to sort things out. Wow, what a mess. And, uh, yeah, you get into work and then uh, you can't sign on uh, because uh, the work has been interrupted. Uh, there's been a, a water mains that uh, has suddenly shooting water into the air or, uh, you know, suddenly ESCOM has gone down or it's... it's yeah, the the amazing uh, the amazing um, the amazing day of the average South African business person. 
we would make a very interesting reading. I mean, imagine if you compare the average South African day to the average British day, the South African Indian day, and so on. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder how they would compare. Um, you might uh, you might actually get people all around the world swapping problems. And you know what? I wouldn't mind having those problems for a change. Let's go to India and see what it's like, uh, you know, trying to get into the CBD on the back of a buffalo cart or something like that. Um, tuk tuk for 20, uh, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, we, we, we generally tend not to like our problems, but you kind of like get the feeling like if you're suddenly presented with another person's problems, you'd say, you know what, mine aren't that bad. Uh, Latala does, you know, tailor specifically uh, the problems in our lives for ourselves. You know, they 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 specifically tailored there for uh, for the for the beneficiation of your nafs. Yeah, just in time production. You want to ensure that uh, you know you get there just in time for the salah. You get there just in time. Um, you know, to make your tahajjud, just in time, salah, you know, just in time production we have. Make sure that your um, your inputs and your outputs are, are matching, that you're able to um, do your wudu on time and so on. Mm. Okay, right, okay, enough of all that. Uh, the all-share index is in green territory today, up 0.8%, uh, same for the top 40 index, uh, on 58,034. Uh, the all share index and 51,977 is the top 40 index. Rand uh, on its recovery path once again. Uh, we are still above uh, 14 to the dollar. We're on 14.19 to the dollar. 17.34 to the pound and 15.81 to the euro. So um, we're trying to retrace some of those losses we made towards the end of last week. Uh, gold is also back above 420, uh, 1420, but only just $1,420.68 will buy you one fine ounce of gold today. Um, the oil price, if memory serves me correctly, from the news is on the $63 a barrel. Uh, so the international oil price still above $60 a barrel. America is still enjoying uh, sub $60 a barrel. Um, uh, intermediate uh, Texan uh, sweet crude, I think, is going for around about uh, $57 a barrel. Um, yeah, we could make something about, uh, you know, the America always ensures that Americans pay less for the oil than the rest of the world is doing. And while OPEC and all of its uh, members agree to uh, price reductions, America continues pumping oil out as fast as it can and taking over OPEC members' markets. It's crazy. I, I, can't, uh, I can't understand why they would agree to such a thing. But, you know, swings and roundabouts, um, <clears throat> you, uh, you save in your production costs and the price of your product increases. And, uh, you know, it's hard to argue against that kind of business plan. But when you suddenly find yourself losing markets um, uh, to the one player in the world that isn't playing the game, Unilateralism seems to suit the United States and doesn't matter what realm it's playing in, whether it's the oil realm, the international diplomacy realm, uh, the dodging uh, tankers in the Gulf of uh, Hormuz realm. Mm. Uh, South Africa, Implats um, is the biggest winner on the JSE today and the Hammerson Group is uh, the biggest loser on the JSE today. Uh, coming up in our show, we've got uh, property, um, uh, property rights, uh, land rights. The government's uh, paper, white paper, has come out today. 
Uh, predictably, agricultural groups are not that happy. Uh, they say their concerns haven't been addressed. Uh, they say, how, how is this uh, land insecurity for farmers? How is that going to affect the outlook for, for debt positions taken up by banks and so on in terms of crop estimates and all of these kinds of things? Um, two South African agricultural groups came out today and said that they're unhappy with the latest report on land reform. They say it endorses expropriation of land without compensation. I'd just like to uh, take this point off, you know. Um, back there in pre-94, uh, 1994 days, uh, as a young journalist, you became you became very aware of a general sense of expectation among uh, the majority of people in this country that there is going to be some major change. When we move away from apartheid, there's going to be some major change. There's going to be respect given to people. People are going to be able to come home to their home at the end of the day, uh, not worrying whether or not the sheriff has arrived and taken away the furniture. You know, uh, that that smoky haze over townships was going to disappear because electrification is going to happen. You know, all, all, all kinds of like, kind of like basic kind of expectations that people had. And uh, more security in terms of income and uh, the children's futures, you know. These were expectations. And I will say that for the vast majority of uh, people in this country, you know, okay, fine. You've got a government grant. You've got like 1,800 rand coming in every month. Uh, I don't know how many of the listeners have tried to make it through the month on 1,800 rand or how many maybe some have made it through the month on, on less than that. You know, we all go through our economic adventures in life. Uh, we're, we're, we're taught to think in straight lines when we're at school, you know. Right, okay, you come out of school and you're going to start saving up for your pension. Oh, uh, You're going to tie yourself to a job. Are you going to tie? Well, no, you're not going to tie yourself to a job. You're going to tie yourself to a mortgage. You're going to be paying off this mortgage every single month. If you miss a few months, you could lose your house. So that means that you have to be a very obedient worker. Um, and, uh, you know, bolting yourself, welding yourself to such a long-term commitment, really, really, it is injurious to the soul, is all I can say. You know, during your life, there are going to be kind of, they're going to come organic moments in your life where you're going to have to choose between your soul and your payday at the end of the month. And it's not a very easy choice to make. But if you do choose soul, oh, you're, you're, you're going to choose a very interesting life, a very good life, inshallah. You choose, choose your nafs. Choose to work on your nafs rather than uh, your bank balance. And you will lead a fulfilled life. And uh, the needs of your nafs and the needs of your, your spouse's nafs, the needs of your children. You know, um, uh, uh, Allah Ta'ala's barakat, Allah Ta'ala's sustenance, our risk, doesn't merely consist of rands and cents, you know. It consists of peace of mind. It consists of uh, love from your family. All of these things that sustain us through life, that buoy us. It's, a, it's that little ray of sunshine in the morning. 
um, you know, it's a little bite in the wind when you get out that sends a little shiver up your spine and it puts a little skip into your step when you step out of the door in the mornings. All of these little things also constitute the risk. They go together. Um, they sustain us not just um, in terms of pocket, in terms of stomach. It sustains us in terms of our heart and our soul. You know, just that uh, a sense of ease at the end of the day. This is also sustenance. And so when we think of our sustenance and we're a brash 19-year-old, don't kind of think of sustenance just in terms of something you can add on a calculator, something you're going to be able to say, all right, I'm going to commit myself to a 20-year mortgage repayment plan, uh, meaning I've got to try and earn a certain amount. I've got to get myself onto an earnings curve. That means I've got to try and um, get myself onto a career advancement trajectory, you know, and uh, and then you find yourself trapped in like a like a bobsled um, uh, route, you know. Uh, you can only go you can only go where the bobsled route takes you between the that that that, that concrete little ditch that you find yourself in, you know. Um, Nabi Karim sallallahu alaihi wasallam said in the end times, you know, everybody's going to be busy, busy, busy. We're always busy, you know. We're always committed to that trajectory. We're always committed to that interest rate curve, that bond yield um, a parabola. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the real needs of our life have, have, have wandered off, you know, around the corner, uh, through the overgrown path, into the dark woods. And there it's headed off, and um, we've watched the, that little path leading away and uh, we've looked at our you know chosen trajectory and they don't go in the same direction and we look at that little meandering path and we say ah, you know i'm busy i have to do these things you know it's like the little granddaughter comes and come over do you want to play ah, i can't i'm busy i'm busy hmm? how many times do we make that excuse i'm busy and by so doing we extinguish a chance for um a little bit of noor to enter our hearts um, an opportunity for our hearts to be gladdened. Hmm? Or, 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 or could it be that, you know, just a little, a little jab of gladness in our hearts could break this brittle heart of ours and just reduce us to um, a collapsed heap of tears? Hmm? Don't you ever feel that way? Don't you ever feel as though, you know, yeah, you, you, you're sitting there, you're home, you've got your feet up, um, you're busy going through the motions of, of, of eating the supper you can hardly taste. Uh, the wife is going on in one ear. Your children are going on in another ear. <clears throat> you're not even, uh, you know, the, 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 the TV is on, but you're not even watching it. I mean, your eyes are there, and you're kind of like glazed. And you've kind of like sunken into that dark little imaginarium of yours between your two ears. And this is the world that you live in because no one else understands you. Hmm? And you're 55 years old, and you're talking like a 14-year-old. Hmm? And the 14-year-old is like sort of echoing the words in your head. And uh, you see, you find yourself at this um, unaddressed youth, this young child, the inner child within. Yeah, 
Hmm? We find ourselves going into our old age and we take our bad, the bad habits of our youth with us because we feel we haven't had a chance to live our youths. You know, we had to sacrifice them. We had to sacrifice them in order to pay for the mortgage. You know, the children hate the house. In this house that you pay for, that you, you pay for every single month. I mean, how much time do you actually spend in it that you can call quality time? You know, you wake up in the mornings, you're rushing to get the children dressed, uh, you're rushing to get yourself dressed, get the children fed, uh, ensure that all of the whatever um, things that need to be done for today are going to be done, trying to remember all, like, each child's different, like, school program, what they had to do for for, for, um, for homework assignments. And, you know, some of these homework assignments are getting increasingly depraved. You know, you've got to go and you've got to cut out pictures out of magazines and you've got to go and, and collect things from over here. And, um, you know, sometimes they are a little bit kind of crazy. And, and sometimes the instructions are not all that clear. I don't know if you've, like, like find yourself getting stuck down into a kid's homework assignments and... I don't know, some of the things uh, that they're teaching the kids nowadays, you kind of wonder, is, is this really an education? Hmm? Home education, really. Uh, there, there, there are a lot of uh, Muslim uh, parents in South Africa who are actually fully committed to home education. And uh, they're not the only parents in the country that uh, felt the need to go this way. So remember, it makes for a really interesting little subculture. I was speaking to one of my friends about it from Benoni a few years ago and he says he's like uh, he's there in with like a whole uh, home education support group um you know uh, parents uh, get together and they find themselves with similar problems uh not just with uh, with various standards but various subjects and so on you know uh swapping books and getting books together uh sometimes it's not all that easy um answer sheets you know, getting into home education is really great for getting answer sheets because uh, parents keep them. Uh, it's, uh, and, uh, you know, you, you got the right answers. You, your children can learn how to, how to answer the questions properly. What kind of questions are likely to come out of up in this year's matric exams and so on. Um, yeah, home-based education. I, I think, you know, looking back on things, getting a perspective on life. Yeah, home home based education really increasingly looks like it's uh, it's the way to go. You have to meet requirements and so on if you're going to teach your kids from home. They have to be kind of like you know toilet facilities and all of these kinds of things. But once you start teaching your kids from home, then uh, the potential is also there that you can take other other parents' kids and and also teach them, and you can pool resources and so on. It's a great way for uh, getting community together and so on. Uh, so you know, that's that's what I that, that, that's what I would suggest if um, if I was starting all over, home-based education, uh, really, uh, because you get some really strange teachers I know at university. <clears throat> was it Rhodes University? I was in Winchester House, Ellen Webb Hall, and of course that's uh, that's the divinity department the law department and the education department. So we used to have a really um, strange kettle of fish uh, at tea time every day. And the strangest fish in the kettle were always from the education department. Mm, some of those onis are really seriously suspect in terms of, I don't know, uh, just very strange kind of people. Well, maybe, you know, that's the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of person that gets attracted to 
education is not like as uh, you know the journalism sector was filled with normal people uh, <laughs> yeah no comparisons uh, we, 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 we will draw the door shut on comparisons there between professions shall we Okay, so, yeah, two agricultural groups are unhappy about uh, the latest report on land reform. Uh, Agri, the Southern Africa Agri Initiative, or SIA, uh, Chairperson Theodore Yaga says the report is obviously flawed because it is not morally justifiable. He's adamant uh, it is wrong for individual landowners who legally bought their properties to foot the bill of land reform as a national responsibility. He says, why must individual farmers now have to foot the bill for uh, a national responsibility? He says that it avoids any reference to how agricultural financing as one of the cornerstones of competitive primary production in South Africa will be affected. Every farmer in South Africa runs the risk of losing a farm or two farms, but the banks can lose all their farms that serve as security for their product financing. Uh, he says he's disappointed about the superficial, what he calls superficial, oversimplified and one-sided version of the history of land ownership, saying it contains blatant falsehoods. As a result, the panel and its members position themselves as inciters of division and racial tension rather than a solution-driven influence on the land issue. He says there's an exaggerated emphasis on the rights of farm squatters. Now, tenant farmers and land squatters are two very different kettles of fish as well. I'm getting me kettles of fish bringing them in here at a regular basis. Um, the, the one thing that uh, South African farmers did uh, was get rid of the tenant farmers on their farms. After 1994, that was the first thing that white farmers did. They got rid of the tenant farmers on their land, which is a bit of a pity. Uh, in fact, it's a major pity. It is a big pity. You see uh, the way um, places like Hazy View, uh, outside the Kruger Park and so on, uh, townships around uh, towns in Mpumalanga like Nelspreet, um, what's more... What's Nelspreet's uh, name? New name? Uh, it's, it's gone by me at the moment. Uh, a soccer stadium built there. Oh boy, it slipped my mind. Okay. Well, anyway, around major cities in Mpumalanga, in rural areas, massive uh, growth in uh, the urban populations because the tenant farmers had been thrown off the land. Now, why is this a major pity? Do you say? Well, for me, it's a major pity because there was a major chance that went begging. Uh, I speak as an Irishman now, you see, because that's what the Irish did uh, when they won their independence from the British. They got it before the Indians. Uh, when they won their independence from the British, they turned to land reform straight away. And the first thing they said was all squatters land, the land that the squatters are not squatters, that the tenants are using now, all tenant farmers land will be given to the tenant farmers, just like that. Dish. At the stroke of a pen, they said all land that has been farmed by tenant farmers now will belong to the tenant farmer. And just like that, overnight, Ireland solved its land problem. And it hasn't had a problem ever since. That's how Ireland did it. That's how Ireland did it. And instead, uh, our, our solution, our land solution is now living very angry, and growing angry in uh, shacks all around Hazyview, around rural areas, all around South Africa. People who used to be able to make a living off the land are now living in shacks and uh, putting uh, extreme pressure on water and electricity resources.
So, you know, in a way, the farmers have also created their own problem. Uh, uh, but we haven't had much leadership on this land issue. Um, we had uh, a basic kind of uh, land agreement sorted out uh, back in 1994. People were very happy about it. They said, yay, we got all rural land, I mean, urban land claims were, were settled also very quickly, almost overnight, places like Sophia Town and so on, uh, because people were willing to take a money payout. But in rural areas, people weren't willing to take a money payout. They wanted the land. And so now we have this intractable problem that we have today. You know, this is the kind of thing that Nabi Karim وسلم, wanted to avoid with the conquest of Makkah. You know, he also made, like the Irish did, just like a, a one-stroke uh, one solution straight away. Hmm? He said, uh, anyone who stays in their houses uh, or goes to the Kaaba will be guaranteed protection. Uh, if you're worried, you can go to these people's houses as well and can and get uh, protection under them. No one will be punished. And doesn't matter how how uh, much of an arch enemy you were to me. Hmm? You murdered my Uncle Hamza and you cut out his liver and you took a bite out of it. I don't care. I will forgive you. I will forgive you. I will shake your hand. I, you, but he even looked away. He did. He looked away. When he did, but nevertheless, he stood by his word. Huh? One stroke, get it all sorted out once and for all, right now. Hmm? And uh, and then what he did it immediately he went on jihad uh, against a nearby city where they were trying to raise like a, a shrine in competition to the Kaaba, uh, dedicated uh, to Alat, who was supposedly the female partner to Allah. Hmm? Astaghfirullah. Yeah. Um, immediately went on jihad. And when again on jihad, Nabi Karim said to the nobles among the Quraysh, you see, you see that valley over there? It's yours. All the cattle in that valley are yours. You see, you see that valley there? Uh, full with the sheep? That's yours. You see that gorge over there with the oasis and the date palms? It's yours. And the Sahaba, who had been fighting with him through all those years, who had been through all that hardship, all, the, all, the, all that pain, who had suffered all those losses of loved ones, of limbs, hmm? of dignity and honor, they had been through all of that, through all of those years. Nabi Karim wasallam gave them, I think it was something like two sheep and uh, a bag of grain. It was something small like that. Uh, and the Sahaba, you know, were a bit taken aback. I mean, they didn't refuse, but most definitely they were taken aback. And Nabi Karim sent uh, his trusted um, advisors out to go and speak and find out what the feeling was. And, uh, and then he said to them, listen, this is the way it has to be. If we want to have a lasting solution, this is the way it has to be. We pay out one thing there, that is your payment, and it is final and it is settled. Now, your greatest reward is in actual fact the peace of Islam and the unity of the Ummah. That is your reward. That is your reward. And, um, you know, uh, you can't say that you were promised something more. In, in fact, that is the greatest reward. We have a victory of Makkah. We have a return to Makkah. We have the victory of the Kaaba. 
we have we have the finalization of the Quran and uh, and and really it was the the unity of the ummah that was the big thing and then uh, consolidating the power base in Arabia that was the the the, the reward for the Sahaba and uh, because because they had been taught at the hand of Nabi Kareem sallallahu alaihi wasallam they accepted and as a result of that peace peace came about but in south africa no 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 we can't have we'll have one person one vote but then you know the market forces must be left to decide and so uh, anc leaders are going to meetings with big business at Nedlack and so on, would have to turn up there. You know what? Uh, some of them uh, turned up in, in, in minibus taxis in the initial talks. They didn't even have cars to drive themselves or drive in like, you know, a 1989 Volkswagen Beetle and stuff like that. I mean, uh, obviously, uh, in need of money. But no, 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 the settlement uh, system would not allow anything like that. Oh, you can buy shares on the JSE, yes, if you go and you go and take a loan from a big bank. And uh, and then share prices go up and the share prices go down. And suddenly when it comes to the payback period, your whole special purpose vehicle has to be handed over to the bank. You've had five years pretending that you're an owner of shares. But at the end of that five years, uh, the repayment schedule is such that now the bank ends up owning everything. Is that supposed to be empowerment? It was never going to be accepted. It was never going to be accepted. And I mean, in, in many ways, the harsh justice, the, the, the unacceptable our consequences of the Zuma years, this kind of like um, free-for-all, uh, grab what you can get at, at parastatals, is a direct consequence of the limitations of our agreement in 1994. There should have been something, a once-off over, over, over the gap uh, and level playing fields. That's it. Now, you know, Every second or third year, the MK Veterans Association is protesting for, for, for more payouts for Umkuntu Sizbe veterans. Uh, you know, uh, one round of, of tenderpreneurs comes through with the Zuma administration. Whoosh, they, they sit in and they push all the Mbekeites out. And then the Ramaphosa Zaits come in and they push out the Zumaites. And now we are cut between the Ace Magoshulaites and, uh, and the, um, the Julius Malemaites. And, uh, you know, because we did not have the wisdom of Nabi Karim Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam back in 1994. So where are we going to go from here? Mm -hmm. Really, things are looking grim for our country, I must say. And uh, the latest explosion of uh, the, the, the fact that... Uh, that uh, the farmers are not happy with the outcome. That's a consequence of that, you see. Didn't want to let go. Didn't want to let go. And I'm not saying all farmers are to blame. But most, most definitely, you know, the leadership that rose, rose up through the system's ranks, a bit like, you know, the leadership of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, so many times, excuse me, over, over, over um, election periods in the United States, I've heard people from civil society saying, is this the best that we can do? Is this seriously the best that we can do? I mean, if you look at the contenders, um, for the for the leadership of the Conservative Party, with Boris Johnson getting in, 
they are such a bunch of little schoolboys. And like, you know, you look at like we have people like Ted Cruz and so on. George W. Bush, such like a spoiled little brat. Hmm? Didn't George W. strike you as a brat more than anything else? Doesn't Bons Johnson strike you as a brat? Hmm? Not Sarkozy. There was another brat. Hmm? Uh, and uh, yeah, the system is not throwing up the leaders that the society needs. The system has become a means of preventing legitimate and strong leadership from coming through. Uh, and so, you know, very often we're sitting being represented by the worst of the worst, hoping for the best of the best. And somehow or other, the, 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 those two kind of like expectations never meet. And it strikes me that they're never going to. Well, we're going to have to cross for a quick little commercial break. Word from our sponsors. Inshallah, we'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to the voice of Ahlu Sunnah Wal Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back. Well, if you want to phone in and share your views, perhaps you're on a farm right now and you reckon that, well, you know, these things need to be said about land reform in South Africa. Give us a call. Our number here in uh, Linesia is 10 Or you can WhatsApp us on 084-786-3132. 084-786-3132. Getting back to that land report. Agri-SA Executive Director Omri Fonsale said the report contained controversial recommendations, including amending the Constitution and land ceilings. He says Agri-SA does not support any policy or legislation that infringes on property rights or any other fundamental right enshrined in the Constitution. If the recommendations contained in this report are implemented to the letter, food security for all South Africans will be compromised. Now here is an aspect that I really do worry about, and that is food security. Um, you know, are we going to find ourselves in a situation such as the Irish uh, found themselves in uh, under the British, where um, like in the 1846 potato blight, where more than a million and more than one million people starved to death in just one year in Ireland. So this is in a, in a country with about 8 million people at the time. In fact, Ireland is the only country in the world today that has fewer people living in it than it did 100 years ago. Uh, it's partly due to uh, the famine and partly due to uh, enforced economic uh, exile. You know, people have been forced out of the country because there's no job opportunities there. So Ireland is the only country in the world that fewer people living there today than there were 100 years ago. Yeah, huh? and it says something about British uh, economic policies. But uh, while the Irish were starving to death, it wasn't because there wasn't any food in Ireland. It was just that they weren't allowed to eat the food uh, that the British wanted to eat. They were only allowed to eat potatoes because potatoes were seen as uh, animal for f uh, food for animals. Seriously, it really does, was like it. Tenant farmers in Ireland were only allowed to grow potatoes. Uh, and they were only allowed to have two sheep, no more than two sheep. How on earth they were supposed to stay alive, uh, even the English didn't know. And most certainly the English didn't care. Um, so, uh, you know, um, are we going to find ourselves in South Africa where we're going to be exporting like, you know, really fancy oranges and and really fat bananas uh, off to Europe while people in South Africa are starving because we can't afford to buy millimio? Um These, these are, are serious problems. And, and, and I wonder why, you know, uh, in the coal sector, 
they will have a conference called A Just Transition to Coal. Why doesn't the land and agricultural sector have also a similar kind of symposium, A Just Transition to a Just Land Policy? Because uh, you see, we can implement all of this stuff overnight and uh, and completely destroy le- uh, food security in South Africa. Uh, we wouldn't be the first country where this has happened. It happened in Zimbabwe, and uh, most certainly it can happen here. Uh, there's nothing special about us. Um, and so Fonsale says uh, that uh, AgriSA President Dan Crick was a member of the Presidential Advisory Panel uh, but there were fundamental differences in opinion and approach to land reform. A Creek and fellow panel member, Nick Safantin, have compiled an alternative report with a focus on private sector solutions. Maybe they should just go and proceed with it anyway. Don't forget about, forget about the politicians. Just put in place something that works. You know? Uh, because, uh, like, uh, you know... Uh, Land invasions in Zimbabwe happened 20 years after democracy. When they started happening, I started saying, but they've had 20 years to sort out the problem. Why haven't they sorted out their problems? Mm, very easy to say, huh? Oh, now it's uh, 25, 24 years, um, uh, 25 years after apartheid, and we still haven't sorted out our problems. And that means the expectations have not been met. That means that people have died with promises unfulfilled. And when those people are like, say, your mom or your dad, or like your precious child that died in childbirth because of malnutrition, then that really kind of like, you know, lodges itself in your heart. It's, uh, it's something that you, you don't kind of like miss or you tend to forget about, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, the intractability of the past, I mean... Uh, take uh, you know Jacob Zuma says I don't know why people uh, complain about my presidency really you know Jacob Zuma's presidency when Jacob Zuma came in town councils all around South Africa you know others, the Mbekiites were thrown out and the Zumaites came in and uh, that meant that people that had established relationships with the local business community all those relationships were gone and the new guys came in and they established new business relationships. So all that momentum from the Mandela era, because basically Mbeki, uh, Mandela was only there for two years. And the Mbeki era was very much, I mean the Mandela era was very much the Mbeki era. We did have, we did have a momentum. We did have a momentum. Uh, and that momentum was then cruelly cut off by two people. Tito Mbeweni, the governor of the Reserve Bank, has started increasing interest rates, destroying um, our GDP growth. We were at 5.5% GDP growth back in 2006. 5.5% GDP growth. What have we got now? Less than 1%. Less than 1% GDP growth. And that GDP growth was was destroyed by two things Tito Mbwende's interest rate increases and Jacob Zuma, um, and Jacob Zuma coming in as president and uh, as a result of that the ANC feeling the need well okay so now we've got a new guy in charge now the whole entire ANC went and uh, replaced people in all of the town councils all around South Africa at national level the same thing happened and all of those business uh, agreements that had been put in place, all of that momentum was thrown out the window. And that, 
that you know the divisive nature of Jacob Zuma's takeover of the ANC uh, was was in actual fact the reason why the Mbekiites were thrown out. The reason why there wasn't any continuity between the two administrations. And now we have with Cyril Ramaphosa coming in and getting rid of Jacob Zuma, exactly the same thing has happened. Now we've got Ace Magashule and um, ANC Lighty, uh, what's his name, um, Julius Malema. Yeah, ANC Light. That's what Julius, that's what the EFF is. It's, it's ANC Light. Um, you know, the Lighties um, coming in. And, uh, you know, yeah, the divisiveness is there. But you get a feeling that it's carpetbaggers and opportunists that are waiting in the wings. It's not people with a plan. It's not people with a strategy. It's not people with a long-term view. <clears throat> it's people with a carpet bag, uh, an eye on the loot in the safe, and they've got a plane ticket in their back pocket. These are the people that are waiting in the wings of our economy, of our political theater. Of our, of our stage that we have. Each of us an actor thereon with our lines and words decided. Mm, yeah. And we're going to play out our roles. Some are going to exuent. Some are going to enterent. Yeah. What, what, what is going to be the final hurrah when the curtain comes down? What state are we going to be in? I wonder. Um, land reform is imperative. It's imperative to take it forward. Uh, Crick and the fellow panel member Nick Serpentine have compiled an alternative uh, report as a sound land reform with a focus on private sector solutions. Uh, Annalise Crosby, AgriSA policy head of land, says the alternative report presents, identifies commonsensical solutions to land reform, which is lacking in many aspects from the panel report. Oh, all right. Well, you know, private sector always comes on and says, we've got better things to do. We can do better. Well, okay. Well, I reckon they should go ahead and do it. Don't wait for government to come on board. Go ahead and do it. If your ideas are good, they will stand. Don't come and talk and talk and talk and talk. Go ahead and do it. Come on. You say you can change it around. Don't wait for permission. Don't be like the Zimbabwe farmers. And don't be like the South African farmers. <laughs> uh, yeah. Come on. It's time. For, you know, the time for talk is long, long gone. So the private sector, as they say, they can take a leading role in driving and financing sustainable land reform. Okay. We want to see it. Come, let's see what you can do. <clears throat> um, she, she says time-consuming consultation processes that will probably follow the panel report could have a, hamper the implementation of land reform. Uh, yeah, okay, fine. So it's imperative to take it forward, but then I would say to AgriSA, go and implement the plan. Come, you let's flunk, dank mensen. All right, come. Implementatie, this no distatie. Ons wach met anticipatie. Anticipation Is that right now? I don't know. Uh, land reform is imperative to take South Africa forward, according to John Purchase, Chief Executive of the Agricultural Business Chamber. Um, uh, both through restitution and broader ownership of, of land rights in the country. Um, in the end, he says, we do need to agree on a part that resolves the land question as best as possible. Uh, Agbiz uh, says its mandated position is that it does not support an amendment to the Constitution for South Africa to grow and develop property rights, rights need to be protected and broader, not undermined and even rendered worthless, says Purchase. Agbiz believes the report does take the debate on sustainable land reform forward while not initially agreeing with certain recommendations. 
Uh, AgriSA says it's particularly concerned about what it calls controversial recommendations, which include changing the constitution and putting a ceiling on land rights. Uh, AgriSA says it does not support any policy that infringes on property rights. Um, uh, all right, okay, let's uh, let's move on. Right, uh, tenderpreneurship, Chinese company CRRCE Loco Supply, using local empowerment partner MBC as a front, scored three tenders worth 25 billion rand from Transnet. This is a report that's just come out, a report by the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment Commission. Uh, has had a look into three tenders awarded uh, to the Chinese rail company, including the infamous 1,064 locomotives tender that saw Gupta Link companies score 5 billion rands in kickbacks. The commission found the Chinese company used its empowerment partner front, the Matsete, Matsete Basadi Consortium, to back Transnet locomotive tenders worth more than 25 billion rand. And in the end, cost the MBC, the empowerment company, 7.5 billion rand. Uh, CR Local Supply is a South African division of the state-owned Chinese train manufacturer CRRC Corporation. It was formed out of a merger of South uh, China South Rail and China North Rail, which bagged the lion's share of the 1064, the 1064 locomotives tender. But earlier in 2012, it had also formed a merger um, between China South Rail and MBC, the empowerment company. And uh, and then uh, once uh, they got the tender, MBC was uh, just completely ignored by the Guptas. Uh, they received no money. Their directors, who were supposed to be taking part in, in major decisions, were treated like employees. And uh, they never received uh, their share, their 30% share of the tender, as had been agreed in the tender documents. And now the uh, Black Economic Empowerment Commission has found that, that this is most definitely uh, fronting. Um, an investigation by National Treasury into the 1064 locomotive tender in May last year found former Transnet Chief Executive Brian Malefe lied in order to inflate the cost of the project by more than 16 billion, from 38 billion rand to 54.5 billion rand. And now he's fighting for his, uh, his pension in court. I hope he loses it. I hope he loses all of it. Really, what a disgusting man he is. Really, enemy of South Africa there, really. That guy will sell anything. Yeah. Brian Malefi, what a dog. What an absolute dog. Transnet Acting Chief Executive Mohammed Mohammadi uh, told the State Capture Commission that uh, China South Rail's three contracts were riddled with irregularities. The commission found that uh, it sidelined its empowerment partners' directors and treated them as employees, not as 30% shareholders. Uh, the report found they refused to source components worth about 2.7 billion rand from local suppliers through MBC, instead ordering it to buy from companies in China. The components were bought without proof they could not be bought in South Africa. A senior source in the local rail manufacturing industry says government's efforts to industrialize the country have suffered severe setbacks because of Transnet's failure to enforce its localization requirements on its locomotives tenders. He says, to be honest with you, local companies have the capacity and sophisticated skills to manufacture locomotives and supply all the components here. There was no need to go to China ever. But how do you preach black industrialization and yet you hand over multi-billion rand industrialization projects to foreigners? 
We have a locomotives industry here based in the corridor between Germiston and Springs. That industry is now dying and companies are retrenching because this ANC government decided to give tenders to Chinese companies. That is what it did. Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon uh, has... Uh, uh, in a statement Monday afternoon, said he has informed ESCOM's annual general meeting of his decision to appoint Jabu Mabuza as interim executive chair for ESCOM and acting chief executive, executive of ESCOM holdings. Mabuza will assume the duty as acting chief executive for ESCOM due to the resignation of Pakamani Hadebe. Hadebe leaves ESCOM on July 31, uh, saying that uh, it's uh, unimaginable demands of the job. Uh, has had a negative impact on his health. One of those un, uh, unimaginable demands is having Pravin Gordon phoning you every day, asking you and telling you how to do your job. And then he's saying, "And I'm going to get a, a what? A, a reconstruction officer, and I'm going to we're going to appoint him soon. Uh, although they were supposed to have appointed him like two weeks ago, and they still haven't done so. Um, so yeah." Uh, uh, I I wish the newest incumbent, Mabuza, I wish him all the best at ESCOM, but I would not want to be ESCOM's chief executive because I don't think you're actually going to be able to do your job. Um, Moody's has expressed optimism regarding government's efforts to stabilize ESCOM's debt, but has raised the alarm about a host of financial operational challenges affecting the entity. Uh, it last week published a research report on ESCOM. Uh, 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 reaffirming the rating at BB+, Plus, it applauded the financial support government has committed to extend to ESCOM, uh, but it also said the utilities operating, cost, operating costs and debt owed to it could not be ignored. Um, so, yeah, they still see a longer-term evolution and sustainability of ESCOM's capital structure, says Moody's, will depend on a still-to-be-devised strategic turnaround plan. Government has been talking about the strategic turnaround plan uh, since before SONA, since February. And uh, we still haven't seen uh, a strategic turnaround plan. Uh, they've yet to appoint the chief restructuring officer. Uh, so, yeah, where are we going to go? Other than more bailouts, I don't know. And why do I say that? Because 11 years after construction started on ESCOM's massive 4,800 megawatt Kusile coal-fired power station in Mpumalanga, not one of its six 800 megawatt generator units are delivering power to the national grid. Not one. Construction started in 2008, 11 years ago. And all six generation units were planned to be in commercial service by the end of 2014. So that's five years ago. But the sad reality is that by the end of July 2019, five years later, only Unit 1 at Kusile has been handed over for commercial use. Has been handed over commercial for commercial use, but has not been commercially used. While Units 2 and 3 have been synchronized with the grid, they're still undergoing testing and commissioning, and the units are not in commercial service yet. It must be noted that only Unit 1 is in commercial operation, uh, but worse, major designs, execution, and operational problems are being experienced, and currently all three units are down and out of service for various reasons. The routine inspection of Unit 1 recently found some defects in various areas of the plant, which are now being repaired. Plan date for return to service of Unit 1. Imagine. 
And there was a return to service of Unit 1 is the second week of August. Uh, on Unit 2, a failure event was experienced, and I don't want to read any more because it's just a too sad a litany. <clears throat> Sassel uh, is under fire. It says some of its South African plants are under threat from sulfur dioxide emission standards that it will need to comply to with uh, e- by 2025. Uh uh, it's a flu gas desulfurization equipment needed to cut emissions of the gas, which causes acid rain and a range of health complications, is just too costly and technically difficult to install, Sassel said. Now, this is why uh, Greenpeace and a whole host of other NGOs are taking Sassel and ESCOM to court for causing deaths because of their pollution. Uh, and now they're saying that, oh, no, I mean, uh, yes, like, like these uh, emission standards are just too high. You must lower them a little. You must give us uh, exceptions. You must allow us to like continue uh, poisoning people in Gauteng uh, because it's just too complicated and it's just too difficult. It's just too difficult. It's, uh, it's amazing, you know, uh, Secunda. Uh, just getting Secunda fired up every single day is more complicated, it's got more valves, it's got more switches, it's got more different kinds of gases flowing in all different kinds of directions, and all of the gas is highly flammable. Uh, I once went and covered uh, an inquest into into deaths at Secunda, and uh, that's exactly how the uh, the managing director explained it. He said, starting this plant is, is, like, is like launching... Um, uh, a um, what's it? The Challenger, the Challenger space rocket. It's it's more challenging than, than launching a space shuttle every single day. And now they're saying that the desulfurization uh, equipment is just too complicated. But they can launch a space shuttle into space. They can do the equivalent of launching a space shuttle into space every single day. But they cannot uh, work out how to put some equipment on top of their chimneys so that they don't poison too many people uh, living around them, you know. Uh, yeah, well, Boris Johnson stepping into 10 Downing Street hasn't been good for the pound and guilt yields. They've slid to multi-year lows uh, since he stepped into Downing Street. Sterling today tumbled along with most of the group of 10 currencies as major various members of Johnson's top team took a tough stance. UK Chancellor, the guy in charge of the economy, Sajid Javid, said he was uh, stepping up Treasury preparations for a no deal. And top aide Michael Gove wrote in the Sunday Times that the government was working on the assumption the talks in EU would fail. And I'm working on that assumption as well, because Johnson is an idiot. I must say, you know, he's coming in like a good, jolly, upper-class Twitter of the year competition. You didn't need to put our shoulders to the wheel and so on. Well... I'm glad Johnson is the UK Prime Minister because he's going to be very, 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 very bad for the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom has not been good for Islam, ever. Uh, yeah, Balfour Declaration, that's where we start. No? And then, boy, believe me, the litany just starts to grow. So I'm glad Boris Johnson is UK Prime Minister because it'll be very bad for Britain. Well, on that rather somber note, I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, cut ties for today. Jazakumullah for joining us. I make dua that whatever trading activity you got up to today has been profitable. And above all, halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.